Good. Uh, I appreciate your return. Let us continue. Um, I request that you sit, take up meditative posture. Let's return to the craft of what Buddhist meditation teachings call iriyapata, posture and orientation of this body in space as the first object of meditative awareness. As you know, all meditation traditions have understood that the capacity to follow bodily processes with our attention is one of the most solid foundations for deeper stillness and it is also what helps us counteract a proneness to emotional um, tailspins. Being able to connect with the body, particularly when the body does not feel pleasant, is something that enables us to weather strong emotional impact on a somatic level. And this is a much better chance to pacify, tranquilize, ground our general state of being if we can attend to its bodily dimension. Simply because emotions don't feed on body states. They feed on thinking, they feed on conceptualization, they feed on perceptual processes. So, being able to attend to the queasy feeling of a, a mild anxiety at the pit of my stomach does not actually feed this anxiety while trying to think about this very anxiety or about how to cope with this anxiety when it arises again in the future does actually feed this anxiety. So being able to shift my habitual attention to a somatic form of attention is a godsend. It's a very effective way of grounding it's a way of actually presencing the mind and it also pacifies the emotional dimension, my state has. So if you close your eyes, if you adopt an upright posture, acknowledge physical dimensions, sort of energetic, how, how much energy is in the system right now, how awake am I right now, then how upright, quite somatically, clear, where does the weight go, where are my hips, where are my shoulders, How is it about balance? 
what's the most dominant physical sensation I can access right now? If I let attention drift when it comes to body, where does it go? Now it's easier to go to sensations, generally strong ones, and stay with them. My suggestion would be, rather than just going to a particular sensation, you broaden out. You hit the sensation where it's loudest. The pressure in your left leg, the rising of your chest as you breathe in, a knot or an area of tension in the body that you could clearly feel. You go there and instead of just focusing on it, you're trying to relate to it slightly differently. So you're trying to relate to that sensation and see, broaden your awareness around it. Where does it end? It's a good question. How far does it go? What's its edge? If you don't find an edge, you continue asking, what does it hang, what does it hang together with? Is it connected to something, somewhere? Can I actually meet it, encounter it? There's a very easy set of three magical questions. Magical in the best sense of the terms, transformative. The first of these questions is, what's happening now? What's happening now? What's happening now? The second of the questions is, how does it feel? What's the specificity of it? How does it feel? The third question is equally simple. It asks, can I enter into this experience in a conscious way? Can I enter into relationship to this experience in a conscious way? What's happening now takes me out of fantasies about the future and memories of the past. How does it feel takes me into the specificity of this experience. It has a quality. It's not just any old crummy experience. It's actually a very specific, particular experience. And I'm not having an objective experience. I'm actually in resonance with that experience. It makes me feel like something. And the third question speaks of the possibility that I can choose, maybe not what it is, but I can choose how I am with it. 
And it asks me, can I enter into a conscious relationship with this experience? And then you take up the breath, or more specifically, the sensations of breathing connected with a particular area in your body, an area which I leave it up to you to decide which area is easiest. I would suggest either the belly or chest or the nose. And if you're unsure amongst those three, I would maybe even suggest the belly. But taking up the area of physical sensation connected with breathing in one of these locations would be the anchor for your attentional focus for the time being. That's plan A. And plan B is that you promise to yourself that you will return to plan A when you notice that your mind is wandering off, drifting off, fantasizing away, brooding, whatever you're going to call your mental activity. Whenever you notice this, acknowledge and then gently return your attention by the power of choice to the meditative object. Good, I'm coming around and have a look at your postures, so don't get scared. Nothing bad is going to happen. So please acknowledge where your attention is at, what it is engaged with. If it is not with the posture and the sensations connected with breathing, please bring it back there. Simply acknowledging where it has gone, gone to, what it toys with, and then without further ado, bring it back to one aspect of the body connected with breathing. See if for this two, three last minutes I can stay in an as undivided way as possible with my experience of breathing. Great. I was hoping to look at some of, uh, I told you I'm a troubles guy. I was hoping to look at uh, some of the things that go on in our mind if we are not mindful. So to look at this from two different vantage points. One vantage point is somewhat traditional and is um, basically speaking of the hindrances. Technically, these are um, local obstructions of the mind on its way to greater collectedness. Yeah? The bad news about this is, although the manifestation of these hindrances is local, 
um, their remedy actually can't be found in meditation alone. That's the really bad news. You can't fix it in meditation. So if you've come here to fix your life in meditation, um, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Yet we have a money back guarantee with New York <laughs> Just, just fill out the claims form. And <laughs> While the, the, some of the things that stop the mind from actually settling, um, you know, they have local manifestations, but some of their roots have to do with stuff in our life. So it's realistic to acknowledge when these things occur in meditation. At the same time, it's also realistic to acknowledge that the best we can do in meditation is practice some intervention strategies. Yeah. All of these intervention strategies can be, but don't have to be effective. But in the long run, the resolution of these hindrances has to happen in one's life. Um, there's more bad news to come, sorry. I'll, I'll just try to be upfront with it. Uh, one of the things that happens when we start meditating, and it doesn't matter what you call this meditation, you call it Dzogchen, you call it mindfulness, you call it Shikantaza, uh, you call it Vipassana, it's always the same things happening. Yeah? Um, the strategy and the language in which you refer to this, you know, can make it dramatic impact on how you read the experience, how you story your own experience, how much space you give yourself in this experience. But on another level, it doesn't really matter what you call it. Your mind has certain habits and it will, it will live out these habits. So one of these habits is about pleasure and displeasure. We have a very profound patterning in our experience that Attention is readily available for things that are giving us gratification, that are pleasant. Sometimes pleasant is more like interesting. Sometimes present, uh, pleasant is more like um, highly agreeable. Sometimes pleasant can feel like stimulating. Sometimes pleasant is precisely not stimulating. What we experience as pleasant, we, we can be quite different. But that we favor, pleasant experiences, uh, we're quite unanimous about. Now, this is important. When things are pleasant, in my experience, and it doesn't matter whether these are mental things, things I think about, or whether these are physical things, things I can see, hear, taste, touch, feel... And something happens to the economy of my attention. If it's pleasant, I have a lot of available attention. That seems to be the rule. There's a natural, organic inclination to give this space, to be available for it, to turn myself into it and say, ah, very nice, yes, great, I celebrate. Yeah. If it's unpleasant, generally we're sorry, maybe not now, Right, no, no, negative, negative, later, preferably never. Yeah, yeah. So there's something in us that makes, mm, yeah. and something that makes, mm, yeah. So this is a particularly important quality in mental, in the mental happening. Buddhist psychology calls this Vedana. 
We have no proper word for it in English or in any other language I know of. Uh, but we know exactly what it means. It's the primary response of our mind to the experience of gratification, of something experienced as a pleasant stimulation, a pleasant engagement of our faculties. The best way to name this uh, in my books is using a complicated technical Greek term called hedonic tone. Yeah. From pleasure, hedone in Greek. That's a little arbitrary, but it is very precise. It says exactly what this is about. Unfortunately, Buddhists themselves often translate this quality called Vedana as feeling, uh, which is, um, you know, a feeling can just be about anything in English, isn't it? I have a feeling we should go, which is one type of feeling. Uh, yeah. I feel this is wrong. Yeah, means basically it's a thought. Um, she plays without feeling, you know, which means she has no emotional depth to her interpretation of uh, Bartok's string quartets or so. Yeah. So a feeling is, if you want to be precise and speak and identify psychological functions, uh, the term feeling is perfectly useless. Nevertheless, because it's a familiar term. Uh, many Buddhist translators have translated Vedana as feeling, which is somewhat misleading. The crucial bit about understanding Vedana is A, it's not a sensation in the body, and B, it's not an emotional quality. Yeah? This is, these are distinctions. It's not a somatic experience. No, it's not something you experience as a somatic as a twitch or as a warmth or as a, a throb or something like that. And it's also not an emotional, affective tone. Yeah. Vedana is somewhere in between. And it's precisely uh, the ooh bit or the ah uh bit. Yeah? But that bit has a, a major, it's a major junction for how attention is applied. If we go by autopilot, or if you allow me to resort to yesterday's terminology, if we go by involuntary attentional patterning, which was most of our attentional patterning is involuntary, then we will immediately favor and give lots of attention to pleasant stuff and try to turn away from unpleasant stuff. This is not, uh, we haven't really invented this. This is there in, 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 uh, in life, you know, uh, from very early on. So if you string a few amino acids together, something very simple, yeah. flagella, no sex, no oxygen breathing, nothing complicated, just a little sort of package of amino acids. Uh, when you put it somewhere where it likes it or where it's nourished by, it kind of goes its with little flagella, it propels itself towards it, yeah? <laughs> uh, and thrives, yeah? And sucks it all up. And if it's a little toxic or unpleasant or too hot or not warm enough, it just kind of blah, 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 goes away from it, yeah? So let's call this principle irritability. Very simple, use it in a technical sense, irritability, yeah? Capable of being stimulated. This same pattern applies to our mind. And this is what 
organizes most of the economy of our attention. Now, attention, this is important to understand, is limited. It's finite. Like time. We do not have much time. If you're a little child, you think, you know, five minutes is eternal. If you're a bigger child, you know it's not eternal. Yeah? If you're sex 60, you know uh, this is not, not going to last. Yeah? There are things you cannot go back on. And there are things you cannot prolong. So we have, because time is limited, and because attention is limited, it makes a lot of sense that we use the time and the attention we have for the stuff that actually is meaningful, the stuff that is capable of giving us a sense of participation, a sense of contentment, and a sense of value. If we had eternal time, obviously we could just take one after the other mindfully and work it out, yeah? And then after, at the end of the day, you know, when eternity was over, we had it seen, we had seen it all and we knew the good stuff, yeah? And if the next eternity comes round, we make better choices. But since we don't have eternities, and since attention is finite, we can be worn out in our attentional patterns. Um, it's important that we make good choices. So leaving involuntary attention to make the choices seems a risky business. If you're not perfectly happy and perfectly enlightened by now, it means that you probably can't trust your involuntary attentional patterns. Yeah? And even you may think this is a strenuous undertaking, you may think it's actually worth risking. If this, what I have done so far, hasn't made me happy and hasn't made, hasn't made me fulfilled and hasn't made me free, I might as well risk doing something I'm not that goes against the grain or I haven't been conditioned into or I have not tried yet. Let's just say, like, be mindful of my breath or making peace with the pain in my knee rather than trying to fight it. After 40 years of fighting knee pain, you may decide uh, it hasn't worked. The, the pain of continuing in a way I know is not going to bring me success after ample of evidence is bigger than the pain of risking to do something I'm not sure whether it's going to work. Yeah. That's how that's 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 how many forms of change come about. We just the pain of repeating something we know is not going to work is becoming increasingly bigger, and the threat of doing something we're not sure whether we can do it, whether it's going to work out, or whether we have the guts to do it, is looking less and less threatening in view of the other pain. And then we're kind of willing to shift. So Vedana rule. That's the short of it. Vedana rule. They rule where attention goes. If I don't learn how to train the mind in ways that this mind can attend to things in greater freedom from my Vedana conditioning, I will try to keep learning from things that are pleasant because I can only learn from things that I attend to. And if I don't attend to unpleasant stuff, it means that I, by definition, will keep trying to learn from the pleasant stuff. Now, unfortunately, the unpleasant stuff has a pernicious habit of repeating itself if I don't attend to it. So in the long run, by maximizing the pleasant bits and minimizing the unpleasant bits, actually the unpleasant bits seem to be cumulative because I keep refusing to learn from them. 
because I keep not attending to them. Yeah? That means they become quite muscled. Yeah? And then they have their own way of muscling into my life via my dreams or via my uh, relational pattern or via my metabolic patterns or and so forth. So Buddhist teaching says, look, you can't really be blamed for what kind of things give you pleasant Vedana. You don't have a choice what you... It's not even liking. It's the stage before liking. You don't have a choice in what pleases you and what does not please you. The only choice you have is how, how honest you're going to be about it. And then once you have acknowledged that you are being pleased or displeased by something, you have a choice what type of activity this leads into. There, you do have choices. Whether you like Grand Rock or Bartok's drink waters, you don't really have much of a choice. It's largely a matter of conditioning. If your parents have been uh, having a fondness for 12-tone music and maybe, you know, um, Euro European uh, classical, modern classical music, then chances are that, you know, you have some familiarity with Bartok. Um, if you've grown up with uh, grunge rock loving parents, then, you know, Kurt Cobain may be more your thing. Um, and because you've spent some time with either of these, you have learned to appreciate distinctions. You have learned to fine-tune things. You have learned to notice fine changes in there. If you ever speak with a teenager about his favorite brand of music, which may be just a glorified version of noise to you, um, they uh, will tell you all kinds of different things which you don't pick up on. Simply because they have exposed themselves to this, they have discerned uh, distinctions, they have spent time loving this in some way, and what you love, you begin to understand more deeply. And you, who has been hating this, been demonizing this type of noise pollution since it, it uh, started to take place in your family home, uh, may lack any appreciative power to even understand distinctions and differences, let alone get anything like the feelings your kid may get from this stuff. So, Vedana are very powerful insofar as we are hooked on them, and we find not just are we hooked on the effect, we're actually trying, we're actually operating our whole attention patterns around getting the, the right stuff and avoiding the, the, the wrong stuff. And that leaves us quite habituated. It leaves us quite conditioned. It leaves us at the mercy of involuntary attention, in other words. So much of Buddhist meditation training is about learning to apply attentional patterns, attentional foci, attentional qualities, irrespective whether something is pleasant or unpleasant, simply because it's happening. And because it's happening, it has something to do with me and my life and my world and my experience, ultimately. If it's happening for me, it's in my experience. And my experience is going to be what my life is about. If I allow this process to remain unconscious, then I will unconsciously, unconsciously 
um, deepen the ruts of my unconscious patterning. Run away, be afraid of, be addicted to, uh, kowtow before, seek safety, comfort, stability, all the stuff we do because we are afraid of transiency, we're afraid of meaninglessness, we're afraid that this world will turn black under our senses, we're afraid that it might, we might not achieve our goals, we're afraid of pain, we're afraid of uh, being publicly shamed, we, you know, we're afraid of many things. Buddhist texts speak of the five terrors. Let me see whether I get them together. One is the fear for the necessities of life. One is bad karma, which may not apply so much to New York in the 21st century as it does to India in the 4th century. One is from blame. Yeah. One is from death. One is from public speaking. <laughs> so one thing mindfulness can do is to fear, to help free us from the five terrors. So we have to be interested what captures our mindfulness. And one of the things that is major in this economy is Vedana, pleasant and unpleasant stuff. The hedonic tone, the flavor of any particular event in our experience. Now, Buddhist psychology speaks of basically two forms of flavor. Three categories and two forms. It speaks of pleasant and it speaks of unpleasant. And then there is a, a bit in between, which some people translate as neutral. And I... Uh, tend to think this is not actually neutral. It's not a third category. The Pali for it is Adukama Sukaya Vedana, which means it's neither pleasant nor unpleasant. So my current understanding, and take this with a pinch of salt, my current understanding is actually it's only two categories, and the third category applies when stimuli are not strong enough to incline the mind either way. Yeah? So it's not actually the neutral middle way between pleasant and unpleasant, but it's simply stimuli that are not reaching threshold level so that my mind would perceive them to be either as pleasant or as unpleasant. Buddhist traditions differ a little bit in the interpretation of this. Some traditions speak of five qualities and make a distinction between mental uh, unpleasant forms, which they call domanasa, more grief or mental unhappiness, and somanasa would be mental uh, serenity or mental um, joy. Uh, the Abhidharma insists that on the level of body you can't have adukama sukhaya vedana, it's all either pleasure or pain, all either comfortable or uncomfortable, all either pleasant or unpleasant. Be that as it may, Let's assume, assume that the subtly pleasant stuff already takes training of mind to acknowledge, and the subtly unpleasant stuff equally takes training to actually acknowledge. So 
how far up the scale we start to register that something is pleasant or unpleasant is largely due to our sensitivity. And remember, one of the primary forms of ignorance, of not knowing, this is the culprit in the Buddhist pandemonium. The central culprit is a character called ignorance. So ignorance is really in the bad books of, of Buddhists. They're down on desire as well and anger, but structurally more crucial is actually something called ignorance. The saying is that you can only truly be greedy and believe that this makes you happy if you follow your greed, or only truly be angry and be committed to following through on your anger if you have enough ignorance going. If you don't have that going, generally even greed and anger don't really look that promising as pursuits. So the most energetically fundamental layer of ignorance is sheer lack of sensitivity. It's sheer thick-skinnedness. It's not picking up. It's not being aware on a very fundamental sensory level. So when I say lack of sensitivity in terms of appreciating pleasant stuff as pleasant and unpleasant stuff as unpleasant, we're speaking actually about the major central linchpin of suffering in Buddhist psychology called ignorance. It's ignorance that stops us from acknowledging the diversity in our experience. So where does that leave us for the cultivation of mindfulness? If we acknowledge that our attention is readily available for pleasant things and runs away from unpleasant things, um, much of the initial effort to train mindfulness is to unhook or unclutch the training of attention as the directional part of mindfulness from the the insistent that I have to be rewarded for it and from the expectation that if I should attend to it, it has to be nice. It can't be not nice. We have to really unlearn this bit. We're quite deeply biased. Attention is not neutral. I I don't think I have heard nearly as a disastrously misleading notion around meditation as the notion of bare attention. Even the man who set that loose in the world uh, regretted it towards the end of his life. There is no such thing as neutral or bare attention. Whether you want to look at this from a Buddhist point of view or from a neurophysiological point of view, our attention is biased. We want things from the world. When we look at the world and when we attend to things, we are never neutral. We don't have a clinical objective bias, not at all. We have a highly, uh, strongly bias in favor of pleasant experience. Even if we go around hating the people and hating the world, we choose, we prefer hating the world because for some reason, although it feels bad to hate people, it gives us a secondary benefit. So we, we like hating. Some of us like hating things because it vitalizes us or because it gives us a sense we are different or it gives us a sense of supremacy or so. 
as a French sociologist, which, have coined, which has coined a very nice term, and this is the, uh, in English, this would be the gain of distinction. Yeah? Very important concept from Bourdieu. We gain a type of distinction by hating something. By hating something, I say, this is not like me. This is totally other. This is ugly, bad, alien. Yeah. This is not mine. I am not like this. I am under no circumstance have I anything to do with this. Yeah. Which gives us implicitly a very good feeling. Yeah. It says, I say, these are really horrible people. They're morally depraved. They're cruel, violent, daft, stupid, greedy. And I don't have to follow up and say who I am. Implicitly, I'm just, you know, modest, meek, humble, clever, circumspect. Yeah? That's just what happens when I point out that these others are different. Yeah? Because by virtue of my ability to identify their depravity, I affirm my moral superiority, my complex, you know, my sophistication, my refinement, my, my lofty mode of being. Does that make sense? Yeah. That's why trouble talk is so bonding, isn't it? We, because we're just going to sit out there, smoke a fag together and talk about the boss up there, you know. And because by pointing out his dreadful fallacies and his, you know, warped sense of humor and his, you know, fundamentally flawed vision of where things should go, um, we tacitly assert that we, we could do it better. Not just that we could do it better, that we are, are intrinsically better. Yeah? Just by virtue of our being. Hum, hum, hum. Yeah? <laughs> so this uh, may make us use aversion, hatred, judgmentalness, contempt, although they feel bad when we actually are honest how this feels when I'm contemptuous or when I'm hating, it may still be preferable for me to relate to the world in those terms, on those terms, because although the physical sense is slightly unpleasant, I shore up a lot of good psychological corroboration of my fine self. Yeah? And since that fine self is a little frail and wobbly and funny around the edges, I may give preference to coping with a few bad bodily sensations around hating, aversion, and contempt to feel psychologically affirmed, rave, you know, corroborated, solidified, structured, and more real. Makes sense, yeah? So, in a way, I'm still seeking pleasant, and I'm still seeking confirmation and affirmation, uh, just via the uh, detour of hating something. So even my hating has something to do with liking. It has, I like my self-image better than I like your self-image. Uh, and I may need to help my self-image by hating yours. You know? And that does the job. So, Vedana do not speak. They don't rationalize. Often, they don't need a lot of intentional pursuit. 
It's cold, I come in, my body just organically moves to the side where the radiator is before I have made a conscious decision. It just so happens. Yeah. Often my behavior is ruled by Vedana or the maximization of pleasant Vedana and the minimization of unpleasant Vedana. It decides what I eat, where I eat, with whom I eat, uh, which chair I take. Um, you know, we have lots of this going any moment. You have Vedana on the basis of your thoughts, of your body states, of your perceptions. You have Vedana on the basis of sensory input. So you can have Vedana both on the basis of mental events and you can have Vedana on the basis of physical events. doesn't matter. Vedana, some of them are highly specific to you. You know, that you get into your big re-traumatization pattern if somebody unpacks little tin boxes or so, maybe highly specific to you. The fact that uh, you don't like it when it's over 35 degrees Celsius hot has more to do with having a human body because they just perform better somewhere in between 15 degrees Celsius and 35 degrees, yeah? And not much more below and not much more above, say... This is quite widely shared. So some of the Vedana we have are shared by many, many people and have generic conditioning as a background. And some Vedana are highly specific. We've conditioned ourselves into them. So don't be confused by the, the diversity of Vedana. What they do in our mindfulness is that they sidetrack us. It makes it Difficult to stay with something if this something doesn't give me a carrot, doesn't offer me a gratification. Nobody wants to meditate if they feel bad. In fact, many meditators would quite happily subscribe to the fact if their meditation is good, if they get good feelings. And if that their meditation is not working, if they get bad feelings. Yeah. Now, this is quite natural to expect. At the same time, you know, I've been doing this for a number of years, and to be honest with you, this is plainly wrong. Yeah? It's just naive to think that meditation is good only because it gives you good feelings. I am happy for you to have good feelings in meditation, but unfortunately you can have lots of good feelings without understanding anything. That's a real bad thing. If you get good feelings, you can just bask and waste time in some benign good feeling state. It may not in any way help you live your life more happily. It may just give you a sort of palliative good feel factor. Yeah. Which is, you know, in itself quite useful. You can know something to make you feel good without too many side effects, maybe a little knee pain or you need to invest in meditation cushions or things like that, but it's fairly Harmless. But you may waste time. Yeah. Worse, you may condition your mind that if it doesn't feel good, it's not worth investigating. If it doesn't feel good, you shouldn't be doing. If it doesn't feel good, you're doing it wrong. If it doesn't feel good, it may mean something is wrong with you intrinsically because it seems to work for him. But if I do the same, I don't get good feelings. That means I'm doing it wrong. Yeah. So you... You can get things wrong on, on many levels with this one. Also, if it 
doesn't feel good, you're not going to pursue it. You just say it's too difficult. That's what people said to Ajahn Chah when he came back. He was a, a, a young, youngish monk, I think early 40s in those days, and he came back to his birth village. The villagers invited him to return from his wander, wanderings, and he, they flocked to him. Because, you know, local boy made good is always interesting. That's not different in Thai villages than it is probably in New York. Um, and they listened to him and uh, applauded to what he said, and then added, basically, what you say is perfectly right, but it's just too difficult. Yeah. Sorry. You know, we don't disagree with you, uh, but the outcome of what you say, we, we're not going to follow because it's too difficult. So the idea that because something is difficult makes an intrinsic statement about its rightness or its wrongness is not really logical, but it's very psychological, isn't it? If something doesn't give us immediate reward, doesn't promise gratification, we just lump it. Yeah. Meditation. Yeah, sounds like a nice idea. I heard about it. Seems to have worked for the Buddha. I tried it 20 minutes. It didn't work. Sorry. Yeah. Back to beer. Yeah. Yeah. More reliable relaxant. Yeah. So our relationship to that quality called Vedana, feeling tone or hedonic tone, is very, very important. And much about the meditation stages um, is learning to attend to processes without demanding that we get immediately gratified by good feeling. Learning to not lose our plot if it does feel good, yeah, and not running away if it doesn't feel good. It's very simple. If it smiles at me, I'm not kind of going all besotted and goggle-eyed. And if it frowns at me, I'm not getting scared or I'm not getting disheartened. Yeah. So learning a capacity to unclutch focus of attention, continuity of attention, stability of attention and awareness from being immediately either gratified or being confronted with unpleasant experience. If you want a psychological description of early stages of the path, it's de developing a reliably accessible type of attentional focus independent of immediate gratification and possibly withstanding unpleasant affect. It's important to get the theory for this, because otherwise, when you're in the midst of it, it doesn't make sense why you should continue with something that doesn't give you good feelings. Yeah? It's about ending of suffering, isn't it, this Buddhism? And all it makes me is more pain, more frustration. And if I don't do enough of it, I feel guilty. Yeah? <laughs> so Buddhism is bad for me. You know? <laughs> Since I've stopped Buddhism, I feel a lot more relaxed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, clear. You can do that. You know, but the problem is not Buddhism. The problem is, yet again, is your relationship to that thing and your implicit expectation that if it's good, it gives you good feelings, which is somewhat infantile, isn't it? You don't ask this when you brush your teeth, do you? You know, there's a kind of 
widespread assumption that the, the effect of brushing your teeth is cumulative. You don't always demand an ecstatic experience when, it, when you brush your teeth. Yeah? You don't just stop brushing your teeth because you don't feel orgasmic about it or so. Yeah? So you just kind of say, well, the value of this is cumulative. Sometimes it feels good to kind of freshen up and sometimes I just do it because I trust it works or it has good long-term effect. And the same with a few other things, you know. Parental training seems to involve helping kids to apply their capacities, their immense learning abilities to things that not always reward them individually. Sometimes it takes many years of parental uh, effort to get kids to learn things they would probably not learn on their own accord because they're Kids are even more prone to these pleasant, unpleasant things. But it doesn't just happen to kids, as you will agree with me. So traditional take of what can happen to mindfulness is mindfulness can be sidetracked by overly pleasant things and by the seeking of pleasant experiences. In meditation, this means three and a half or five hindrances will come in the form of thoughts. Yeah. Since you sit here with angelic faces, closed eyes, sense desire as the first meditational hindrance will manifest as either a memory or as a fantasy. Yeah. Sense desire is not just something that happens to greedy, immoral people out there who don't meditate. Sense desire is very much what's happening to you when you meditate. It's Basically, the beginning of sense desire is something pleasant happens and you decide, I'm going to repeat this. Yeah? Let me have more of this or at least repeat this. Or let's, let's get over this once more time. Yeah? I plan my holiday. And I start to kind of lovingly fan out the few options I, I can choose from. All of these are pleasant options and I'm trying to find out the most pleasant, the most promising option. So, well, you try out recipes or redecorate this wonderful place here, or you think what you're going to do when you get out here finally, or you lovingly ponder uh, an encounter with somebody. Uh, try to get a taste of a lingering sweetness that memory brings up. You know? Or you anticipate something. And then you're saying, oh yeah, let me think that once more time. It's not as good as doing it, getting it, being there, but already thinking about it has a sort of sweet afterglow. So let me think it again. Yeah. Yeah. And then you do it again. This doesn't sound immoral, you know. It's not a criminal pursuit. In fact, in terms of ethics, it's perfectly harmless. Many things that are detrimental to our meditation practice are in moral terms perfectly harmless. doesn't cost anything, doesn't harm anybody, not abusive, not addictive. A little bit addictive, maybe. <laughs> Nobody's going to blame me for it, but it's detrimental to the mind's ability to settle, to become still. It seeks being gratified by dabbling with some object, a thought, a memory, a fantasy, and it has a derives from playing with something pleasant, 
a nice, warm, fuzzy sort of feeling, which is harmless enough. But in terms of samadhi, this is very detrimental to stillness of mind, to stability of mind. So let's not, Vedana are not about morals. There's actually very little ethic in Vedana. The level where Vedana hit is not a level where you have ethical choices. You can feel pleasantly stimulated about things you may feel perfectly immoral about. The point is not what you feel. The point is what you do with those feelings. Whether you go about consenting and pursuing these feelings. That's where things really hit the fan. When you go about from Vedana to liking and from liking to wanting and from wanting to grasping and attaching and engaging and getting born. Yeah? That's where ethics come in. But at the stage of Vedana, the only thing you can do is basically acknowledge what takes place with the greatest possible honesty and acknowledge what it triggers in you. So, let us look at some of the other types of thoughts that come up as meditational hindrances. Obviously, desire and anything to do with pleasantness and the seeking of pleasantness. The Pali word is not just desire, as in tanha or raga or lopa. Yeah, these are all different words of desire. So, tanha is more the kind of wanting, and raga is more the sort of ra thing. Yeah, and loba is more the sort of sort of the stickiness and not wanting to let go. Yeah. But there are many more types. You know, the, the crucial first word the Buddha uses in the Dhammachakapavatana Sutta is actually delight, seeking delight. A mind that keeps turning here and there in the pursuit of seeking delight. You know, what's on offer? Where can I sit? Who's got the nicest smile? Where is the softest cushion? Where does the sun shine? Where doesn't it... Where? Where is it best to be? Yeah. So it's the kind of scanning. This is what involuntary attention does when it's not about survival. For survival, it's great. When it's not about survival, it continues to seek what it deems to be appropriate stimulation across the sense channels. How can I be entertained? How can my precious self be appropriately stimulated right now? Yeah, that's sort of the position it comes from. And then if it doesn't get anything, you know, if it really looks too sordid where I am, you know, boring people, flat cushions, nothing to eat, no entertainment, it kind of mopes a bit and then it turns inward and rummages around in memories and fantasies. Yeah? So meditate is already clearly disadvantaged in this process by being held to silence, closed eyes, and low stimuli, um, by default turn to memory and fantasy. That's why meditational hindrances, despite their grand names like desire, which sounds really attractive, doesn't it, in some way, um, or hatred, actually, we're speaking of thoughts, we're speaking of images, we're speaking of memories of fantasies. So we... The second of the hindrances is exactly the same principle, just it's the flip side of the coin. Aversion is nothing else but the flip side of the coin of desire. Yeah? If you maximize desire, you will maximize aversion. You can't help it. If a society collectively maximizes the pursuit of pleasure by pursuing greed and sees that as individual expression of success 
then you will produce violence because there will so many people who can't follow along, who don't have the means or who don't succeed. And these people will be angry and frustrated and bitter. And at some point they will start slitting your car tires. At some point they will start, uh, if they can't have what you have, they will try to mess up what you have. You know? So this is very clear on, on an individual psychological level, on a level of social psychology, you can't maximize greed as a virtue and glorify it as that without maximizing violence. And my, violence will be maximized. In terms of individual meditation practice, it looks a lot less harmless, but you will sit here and you will hate things. You will find aversion. You will find things that make you annoyed. You will either think about these people who make you annoyed. It's generally people who annoy us. It's rarely doors or pot or you know potted plants or so. They generally don't really are the focus of our ire so much as human beings. You know, we seem to be wired for human beings in many of our uh, mental moves. So the thoughts will come up about things that made you angry or things that or people that keep making you angry or what you're going to do next time when they make you angry. You know, you can do that retroactively or you could do that more anticipatory. There's many ways you can play that, but it will be you will find vitalization in your current state through being contemptuous, aversive, angry, hateful, you know, sort of subterranean low ember hatred or more a sort of a cold calculating searing hatred or more sort of rageous you know inflammatory hatred different brands of it but basically you will be thinking about people or you'll be thinking about what you will do when people do some things and this will stop your mind from becoming still The third hindrance that has to do with thinking is doubt. It's a, doubt is an emotion. Let's just put this out there. Yeah? Doubt is an emotion that is unpleasant. It's about a question I feel I should not have. And one way of coping with that unpleasant feeling I think I shouldn't have is trying to corroborate my fixed points. I'm trying to do probability scenarios on the basis of experience. I think what could happen, I think what it might be like, I think how it would look if what I'm afraid of is likely to happen or a little less likely to happen. In other words, I cope with the unpleasant emotion of doubt with a cognitive attempt some mental discursive scaffolding to hold this beast of doubt at bay. Doubt is something where I feel I have a question where I shouldn't have a question. There are many questions I'm quite happy to live. I don't know what I get tomorrow morning for breakfast. doesn't really trouble me much. But if I'm not sure whether I should be a Buddhist or should live with my wife or, you know, or should continue my job, then this is generally something that doesn't leave us in a good place. It's a, we, sh we have a sense we should not have any questions in this. So this gives rise to a lot of doubt. So this would be the third type of uh, hindrance that comes across 
as thought. The three and a half part, the half part, is the fourth hindrance, which has two parts. One part is called Udacha, one part is called Kukucha. Udacha is restlessness, can also be mental, but is mostly physical. Kukucha is a kind of agitation of mind, sometimes connected with my conscience, <coughs> sometimes connected with a sense of remorse of stuff I have done. And maybe for good reasons I feel bad about what I have done, but right now I can't do anything about this. Right now I'm sitting in meditation. I'm on a retreat or in a situation like this, and thinking about this doesn't actually help me address the theme. But there is a easy, easily a self-punitive pattern creeping in. Namely, I start flagellating myself by thinking how horrible I have been, how pain I have, how much pain I have created, how I should have known better, how this was contrary to my better values. So I kind of start tormenting myself by thinking about some of my shortcomings. This is a type of agitation that can really uh, be very, very detrimental to well-being, let alone to samadhi and stillness of mind. So of five hindrances, three and a half have something, will come across as forms of thinking. So if you feel your mind doesn't settle because you think, it may be worth looking a little more closely what kind of thinking this is. Is this desire thinking? Is this hatred thinking? Is this doubt thinking? Is this agitation thinking? Just a sort of a hint. The other hindrances, the one and a half other hindrances, one of them is sleepiness, or actually the Pali is tinamida, which means um, lethargy, numbness, stupor, sloth and torpor is a translation, but it's important that you get this psychologically right. Lethargy is a good one. Sleepiness obviously is one, but stupor also is part of that hindrances. Yeah. Sometimes when we fall asleep, we just nod. Yeah? Our heads loll forward, our postures manifest that. Um, we start kind of falling off our perch. This is kind of famous rocking movement. So this is this type of sleepiness, but sometimes that hindrance manifests as a sort of stuporific rigidity some kind of strange insensitivity that we go into, and it can feel quite peaceful. We may not even fall visibly off our perch, you know, just go into some kind of numb, dissociated, parallel dimension and stay there and don't feel how time passes. Um, so there are many manifestations of that third hindrance. And sleepiness is a tricky one because it has many, many possible psychological reasons. One of them may be just sheer exhaustion, honest fatigue. Uh, that's the most honorable one in some way, we feel. Um, but there are, unfortunately, other reasons. Sometimes it's the lack of clarity of our exercise object, of the lack of clarity of our actual meditation object may give rise to sleepiness or fogginess. Uh, often it's more complicated than that. Something It has something to do with our will. So willful people struggle particularly with sleepiness because parts of their in intention and their willfulness 
to meditate overrules other aspects of their psychological being. And when they relax, as is inevitable when you want to become more quiet, then these other willfully displaced parts of the psyche begin to flood back in. Yeah. So this is part that says, yeah, she can make me spend Pesach with these Buddhists. She can drag me here in the morning, like, you know, nice day, could hang out with my family. She can make me sit indoors and just listen to this, and meditate and feel my knees. But as soon as she lets go, I just overwhelm her. Yeah? As soon as she gives up control, her willful power is lessening a little bit. I just sabotage the whole project. I just make her sleep. Yeah? Uh, and as soon as, you, as your super-egoic willfulness re relaxes in the attempt to be more still and more tranquil, all these repressed bits flood back in and just put you to sleep. You know? She can spoil my Pesach and my family outing, but she can't make me meditate. So that's one of the reasons sleepiness can kick in. Sometimes sleepiness is a varnish for our aversion. Yeah. Sometimes sleepiness is more pleasant than feeling aversed, particularly feeling averse to yourself. So it takes off the edge of my self-aversion or my discomfort with myself or even my self-hatred. So it feels a lot more pleasant to just kind of fuzz out, numb out and just kind of having had a meal, and it's okay, nobody's going to do me any harm here, so I might just kind of blot out a bit. There's worse things than sitting on your cushion after the meal and blotting out. Once you get used to sitting in that state, just, just hang in there and it will pass. He will ring that bell sometime, you know. may take longer than I wish, but he will, you know. He's not, he's not going to stay there forever, you know. He's going to take a plane on Sunday evening, you can be sure. So he has to get out somehow. So this, some part of you which goes into sort of a numb, fatalistic, yeah, 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 just another, just this too will pass, yeah? Great piece of Buddhist wisdom. So if I just hang in and, you know, pull the blanket up a little and hunch my shoulders, it just kind of... Uh, sometimes... Sleepiness comes in as a strategy not to be confronted with something unpleasant. Either something that I'm afraid of, something that I feel I don't have the resources, something I'm not willing to meet. So whenever my meditation takes me close to that, my system is just suddenly being shut down, you know. I was quite bright awake, and then he said, meditate. And then, you know, it feels like I have a kind of plastic bag over my head, and air goes out, and I'm just going to sort of a numb, unfeeling space. And then he rings the bell. Yeah. yeah. So there, if you notice such patterns in yourself, particularly on retreats, if you notice a pattern that you come in bright awake, you go into this numbness, as soon as he rings the bell, you kind of wake up, say, what was that? And you're bright awake again and walk out. Have lively conversations with your people or feel crisply clear. 
you notice something slightly suspect here. So anyway, it will need investigation. If sleepiness is recurrent, there are things you can do. You can pull your earlobes, you can open your eyes, you can deepen your breathing, you can do perineal contractions, you can, you know, there's a number of things as intervention strategies that can help you cope with this. But in the long run, you will need to find out what the secondary benefit of your sleepiness is in your psychological buildup. You will need to find out where you are overstraining. You'll need to find out where you're willfully suppressing aspects of your psyche, which then take revenge on you and sabotage your awakening project. Um, you may have to ask yourself whether this practice is safe enough for you, you know, whether you feel safe and how safety comes about in your life and in your practice. Sometimes there is wisdom in our hindrances, to be honest with you. you know, sometimes our psyche says, you know, he wants a big mystical experience, but tomorrow morning he's got to be on his job again, functioning and working. So he doesn't actually have space for mystical experiences. So any, anywhere, whenever he gets any close to any of this, we just put him to sleep and he doesn't do any harm. You know? <laughs> doesn't do any stupid things here. Yeah. There's no time for mystical experiences right now. He's got to drive a truck tomorrow morning and, you know, he's, you know, oh, he's, he's looking after neighbor's two kids or something like that. And this is not the moment for him to go into big mystical experiences and dismantle his personality construct and for, possibly f warp a little at the edges, yeah, and take time to reintegrate on another level. This may be the moment where he just does some Strengthening his batteries, recharging, bodily mindfulness, and no mystical experience. Yeah? So whenever he gets a little too bolshy on the mystical side, we just put him to sleep so that he doesn't do any self-damage. <laughs> Sometimes something in you says, this is not a safe situation. Teacher is not there. Teacher is not on the ball. Or this people in there which make the situation volatile. I can't... I can't risk vulnerability on this. Or there are other things that are at play where something in your psyche has the wisdom to not let you jump in at the deep end. Yeah? I have come to appreciate uh, the psyche is quite intelligent. There is generally some savvy at work, even when we behave neurotically. Uh, on some level this makes sense. And uh, I, as a meditator, and I, I've looked early on in my life down on psychology and believed myself to be on a higher path of spiritual awakening, having left the netherworlds of psychological needs behind and all this. And I've come a long way to actually acknowledge tremendous wisdom in the psyche. Even where a psyche looks pretty warped, behaves psychotically or... Uh, does obsessive little numbers on himself or on his life. Um, generally, there's good reasons for doing what we do. On some level, this makes sense. On some level, this may have been the best we could ever have, we could have done. And maybe it's now time to rejig some of the parameters and see that what we need to do, we can do differently. But not just by taking away our props, our defense structures, undo our great uh, 
mechanisms that help to survive. Generally, this happens gently. We need to learn actually having a need before we can transcend that need. And having a need is a risky business yeah, because we may get rejected with that need. We may get shamed with that need. We, that need may be met, not met. Or we may, we may be uh, given the feeling that we shouldn't have such needs. And it may take quite some time before we feel it's safe to actually have that need. And the psyche has ways of learning. And before we can actually let go of a defense structure, we need to have a realistic alternative. And it's not just not working to take the defense structure away without the realistic alternative. It's immoral, to be honest with you. Not just does it not work spiritually, it's actually morally not really on to, to encourage people to do that. Yeah. So there's some sanity often in our hindrances. There's some sanity in our uh, seemingly uh, ineffective neurotic behavior. And unless we're willing to hold the need underneath the apparently neurotic behavior more deeply and more consciously and more compassionately and also more realistically, uh, sometimes the neurotic behavior is the best chance we have. And unless we see other possibilities for ourselves, we keep pursuing our neurotic little uh, patterns. Yeah? And it's always easy to make fun of other people's neurotic little patterns. Um, like it's easy to make fun of other people's fears if we don't have them. But um, where we do have them, and remember, from a Buddhist point of view, we're all slightly or actually quite a bit neurotic. Uh, where we are concerned ourselves, it's always difficult and challenging and feels frightening. And there's growth that has to do with my intention to wake up, and then I keep putting in good conditions to make this possible, and then I wait. Yeah, I let something grow. To go back to the potted plant, it's me to plant something, loosen the earth, water, fertilize, turn into the light, make sure the temperature is okay, and then I wait. I don't go and pull. Yeah. If it's not there after, I think it should be there. You know, I'm not digging. Or if it's producing his first two leaves, whatever they're called in English, I forgot. I'm not saying wrong leaves, trim these leaves off, bring out the right leaves, you know, we need, we don't do this, we're not going to pull it to speed up the process. There is a growth that we don't have a say in. We, pre we present conditions, we apply the best of our wits to make something happen, and then it grows at a pace which may be slower than our impatience suggests. So ponder these hindrances. Um, let me stop at this moment. Three and a half of these hindrances come as thoughts. Um, one of them about sleep and stupor and lethargy, and one of them about physical restlessness. I haven't said much about that. Um, it basically is the body playing up and giving you symptoms, telling you to do something. Scratch, move, relax, crack, readjust, 
fix somehow and you being appealed to, to do something with the body. And when you do it, it feels great for three seconds and then it continues somewhere else. So this would be one example of restlessness. My hunch is try to seek the greatest amount of stability and comfort right at the beginning. Get the folds out of your socks and out of your trousers. Loosen your belts. Sit straight on your cushions. Take enough props and then try to not fidget. Try to not change. Try to be with the impulse and consider that impulse to be an obstacle rather than your inner true voice that tells you you now need to do this. Good, let me stop. Any questions to this? Please move a little bit, uh, stretch. You've been very patient, thank you. Hi. Please. Thank you for the teachings. Um, I Just a clarification, when you were talking about the hindrances, the three and a half, um, and the agitation in the mind that is negative self-concept, did you use the word papancha, or did you use another word? I didn't use the word papancha, but obviously you can, you can do a lot of agitation with papancha. Yeah? Papancha refers to a specific mechanism of conceptual proliferation. Um, you can do that with any of the hindrances. But particularly agitation responds beautifully to papancha. Yeah. Did you use a word that sounds like papancha? <laughs> I can't think of it. Maybe it was just bad English, you know. So. Or just my hearing, maybe. Uh, I mean, papancha would fit, but I'm pretty confident I haven't used this term today. Thank you. Yeah, there's a question here. Hi, thank Hi. you. Um, uh, this question might, it's a little different than what you were teaching us, but it's a question that I have about... Um, for you that you might answer now or another time. Um, and it's about uh, where you see a community of practitioners going in light of the popularity of mindfulness um, these days and in light of, as I think that the, the teachings that you're giving us point to are very complex and the practice is very complex. Um, and I say this, um, uh, it's, it's not just an intellectual question, it's a question I have because I've been practicing for 20 years and have had a lot of ups and downs and uh, not always so much support for practice. Even though there is, I know there is some support, there are teachings, there, there, is, there are places, but I still find it difficult to have enough support, enough community in the right kind of direction. Mm -hmm. I think it's our biggest challenge, you know, if I look at the three refugees. And the third refuge, Sangha, community, is where we have the greatest challenges in Western societies. You know, our background is 
very deeply individualistic. You know, that's the big passion about Occidental philosophy and psychology. All focuses on this autonomous subject, you know, kind of doing things self-determinedly, understanding everything, actualizing itself beautifully in the span of a lifetime. So this kind of project, the autonomous self, is strangely at odds with the notion of community. Because the way we look at practice, and the way we look even at Buddhist teachings, or <coughs> is highly biased by this individualist goggle we, we have. If I've lived many years in Asia and with Asian people who lived in Western society, so I've seen decontextualized Asian folk and been with them where I was decontextualized. And I've come to the conclusion that uh, reasonably intact Asian Buddhists have a very different take on the role of community than um, passionately autonomous independence-seeking Western folk like my generation who ended up in Buddhist monasteries were people who, you know, they didn't exactly do what mommy told them to do. You know, they wouldn't have ended up in Buddhist monasteries as Westerners if they had done what their societies would expect from them. So I don't have a straight answer, but we need community. I have no doubt in my mind that we are absolutely in need of learning together, learning, growing, and has a, an intrinsic need of other human beings. You know? And if we, if we don't get this together, this will be short-lived. Yeah. If we don't get communities together, however difficult cumbersome, uh, frustrating that may mean, or even threatening that may be to us, this will not fly if we do not find a third refuge coming together. This will not look like it did in Asia. I doubt it's going to be a huge monastic movement yeah, after what I see. This is a secular age, and the way the big discourses of our time are held in a secular language. Even me, if you look, how little Pali I use to talk with you. <laughs> yeah. If you know what I talk of, you will probably hear some of the Pali behind, even though I may not say it. Some of you hear Pali words, even though I don't use them. <laughs> yeah. But we need to contextualize this in the way our societies think and speak, and in the way this discourse happens. And we need to find ways to do this together. And this is not easy, because people don't have time. People have complicated lives. People are either bored with each other, or are afraid of each other, and have infinite longings what we can do for each other. I felt Thai people, with whom I've lived many years, a lot more realistic. How much happiness you can get out of a marriage, or how much happiness you can get out of being part of a group, or how much happiness you can get from individual friends. They seem to be a lot more realistic. We have strange visions of great independence, and then correspondingly huge yearnings for feeling belonging and part of. And 
we're fiercely autonomous and independent. At the same time, we seek actually to belong in some profound way. Yeah? And there is a correspondence there. And our societies are only just learning this. You know, we're, we're, I think we have to recover from various things. One of the things is this weird concept of a nuclear family, you know, which may have worked for a time when we lived in a way that the load was shared equally, but kind of sending daddy out to work for 60 hours a week and confining mommy with three kids into a flat and doing it on her own with the kids and is a weird notion. I know no culture, if you look across the world, that has done this reasonably successfully. Most cultures realize that, say, things like rearing kids is a multi-generation job. You need to involve grandparents. You need to involve a village community. You need to, you know, you need to think this bigger than just mom and dad, and one of them is at work and the other one is confined. This kind of thing doesn't fly. I don't think it flies. Under ideal circumstances, it may. And, you know, the fact that we're here and that probably your parents may have believed in this fully to some extent, uh, as, as mine have, um, is, a, is a little wonder. But I, think, I don't think it's sustainable. It's particularly not sustainable if you start chopping up people. <laughs> and if you go from nuclear family to, to single-parent family, or, you know, it doesn't work that way. I think we need to rethink this community thing, this where we belong. And in many ways, I see this happen. You know, the people choose, begin to patch, patchwork together, go beyond traditional notions. Or, uh, but it's it's slow. And so much of what we, how we relate to ourselves, has to do with how we have been related to. And if individualism is there and in the way dad handles his emotions, then I, as his kid, will li likely to get a message how I'm supposed to handle my emotions. And that doesn't make me find community easier, you know. So we need to work on this. I think, I think this is a way to start. Coming together, acknowledging kinship beyond sympathy even, beyond color, beyond economic uh, means, beyond my kind of people. Uh, for me, what, what really has helped is communal, actual communal living. I, I've spent a larger part of my adult life in some form of community. Uh, some of them were monastic, but not just. Uh, in fact, I've been in my mid-40s before I started to actually truly live a non-communal life for, for, for the first really time, for a long time. Before that, it was all communities. Um, and I wouldn't want to miss this. I cherish my privacy right now in my current phase, but you know, most of my monastic life was about community. It wasn't about nettle soup alone in a cave. Yeah. It was about living with people I would never choose to live with and seeing these guys become my friends after a few years. Yeah. 
and finding out that I'm not who I thought I was and see growth in being with people whose reason to be where I was was not that they liked me or I liked them. It was that we were together in something because we had a goal outside of our immediate lifestyle. We weren't there because we were fond of each other. We could grow quite fond of each other. That was the beauty of it. But that wasn't what got us together. And in a time which is fast-paced, where people have hold immense complexities, um, it's difficult to make that space where we could grow communal. And yet, this is the only time we have. You know, we can't say no to complexity. We can't go back into some kind of pre, pre-industrial Luddite happy paradise, you know. Uh, if you have ever tried, you know this is doable but at a high expense and it's not going to work for a large amount of people. And it has its own pressures. Um, so the way forward seems to affirm communality, team up with people. If they don't come to you, you go to them. If you feel that you don't have enough Kalyanamitas, Try to think to whom you could be such a Kalyanamitya. I think we need to bring this practice into the city and into differing activities. Just sitting on a cushion alone, as necessary as this is, will not cut it. It will leave out so many people and it will not actually build very strong relationships if we keep being silent and not looking at each other or treat each other as meditational hindrances. So, you know, we will need to translate this more deeply into our societies, into our cultures. It has started in a big way, I have no doubt. The mindfulness movement you broached initially is one feature of this translation, which, you know, there is mindfulness now happening in places um, I would have never thought mindfulness can go to. And this is very encouraging. In many ways, the challenges of our time, the craziness of our time, the speed of our time, the fragmentation of our time also breeds necessity. And human beings are quite good at coping. We've We've championed adaptability at one stage. We've run around 400 million years with the brain of a monkey. This character was quite successful. 400 million years is a long stretch in evolutionary terms. It was as tall as we are. It was walking upright and it had the brain of a chimpanzee. And then something happened which meant that this couldn't continue and it needed to grow, and it decided to grow. Instead of growing a particular skill, it grew the skill of adaptability. Then our neofrontal cortex erupted and gave us Homo sapiens sapiens. So we're good. We're good at surviving. Once we decide that we need to team up, we need to learn, we're quite resourceful. I haven't given up on human beings. Um, but right now we're still translating this stuff, what is there, and translating it into our societies. I see wonderful 
range of diverse Buddhist movements sprouting from orthodox monasticism to secular movements that have a very different tack. And I see it happen in r nice rural retreat settings, and I see it happen in downtown Manhattan. I see it happen across the spectrum of skin colors and ethnicities, and that's, that feels good. Yeah. It's needed. Uh, it doesn't quite work as quick as I would like it to, but I, I have no doubt that I will help and put in my two cents to make this happen. Yeah. I find it very inspiring to be part of this. I wouldn't want to live at any other time, to be honest with you. It would have been nice to have met the Buddha personally, kind of, yeah. But actually, this is a good time. Could let us sit for a last one, Selma? Thank you. And then we sit. Um, I had a question about remorse, or two-part actually. One's technical and one's about practice. Um, if I'm understanding you right, when the hindrance of restlessness and worry is being referred to, are you, are you talking about, is worry more in terms of remorse? And then the, the second part is, um, for the last several retreats that I've sat on, I've struggled with remorse coming up for days and days, and, um... I'm about to go on retreat next week, and it's already started. <laughs> it started early. And so this was a struggle for me last week, and I'm just wondering how to, how, how to handle it. Well, be grateful. If, it, if, if the hindrances starts before your meditation practice has started, it means this is on your plate. Yeah? So there's no... There's no doubt that this needs to be addressed, okay? Um, this is going to be personal. You, know? you don't get generic remorse. You get generally highly specific remorse. It involves specific actions or inactions on your part. It re involves specific people. You need to... Behind all this remorse is probably something that you need to affirm... This is a sensitivity, somewhere in your value sphere. Something that you don't really have a choice about. It is important. And because you have not given it the importance it probably has in your heart and in your life, you feel that you're discrepant. And that will need addressing. Maybe this is something you can change through behavior. Maybe it is something you can't change anymore. And then you will need to look whether you can acknowledge your responsibility in symbolic ways, promise yourself things, and also promise yourself to forgive yourself. Yeah? You may feel remorse about things that you actually don't have responsibility. You know, There is such a thing as Neurotic guilt. So this would need looking at very closely what this is, what you're carrying here, and what you're holding against yourself. I wouldn't just believe it because it feels strong. Some things feel strong and they're perfectly neurotic. And you don't want to give this your energy if it's not something that you can change and if it's not something that has to do with behavior. 
You know, in legal terms, you're legally accountable for behavior, not for who you are, but for what you do. If your remorse is about what you, who you are, rather than what you have done or what you keep doing, then maybe something needs changing in the way you hold yourself rather than in what you do. Does that make sense? Yeah. That's as much as I feel comfortable saying in public. Yeah. Um, but since it has already started happening, even before you meditate, congratulate yourself. You, obviously something feels you're really ripe for this. It doesn't even look for a meditative context. Just the plan to go there brings it on, which means it's at its very last stage yeah, of becoming conscious. So, good, let's sit for another couple of minutes. Thank you for coming. Please be well. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.